Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey, Karen. How's it going? Really good. Starting to enjoy this Virginia life. Yeah, it's so cool to be close to Washington, D.C. I would just love it that. Is. Yeah. We've been going to see all the museums. It's been super fun. Plus, you're going to have so much more water. You don't have to, like, <laughs> you can, like, let your sink run a little bit extra. You can take a little longer shower. So, when it rains, my kids, like, run outside. They're <laughs> super excited. Yeah, they probably have never seen it before. Plus, you're probably going to have some snow for them, right? Oh, we can't wait. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to start out today talking about um, multiple sclerosis, and this is an article that's called Exclusive Breastfeeding and the Effect on Postpartum Multiple Sclerosis by Helwig Rock, uh, Rockhoff Herbstritt that was in JAMA Neurology just in August of 2015. So the authors state that women with multiple sclerosis have a 20 to 30% risk of multiple sclerosis relapse by three to four months postpartum, and they wonder if breastfeeding has an effect on this risk. I didn't realize it was so high, but I know a lot of autoimmune stuff can flare postpartum. Yeah, my experience has been my understanding that women have um, a good chance of having remission while they're pregnant, and then sort of that that fades away after they deliver, and some people relapse. For multiple sclerosis, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it varies depending on the autoimmune illness because I've heard that, um, let's see, I think, it, so like rheumatoid arthritis will get pregnant, will get worse, better during pregnancy, worse postpartum, and it's kind of the opposite for lupus. Oh. Is what it is. I'm, I'm, okay. Well, maybe you shouldn't quote me on that, but I know that it can, but you know, obviously. But yeah. I definitely know, I, have had patients before who have had um, MS relapse after delivery. Yeah. So they state that there have been some studies done in the past on this issue, but the studies are kind of equivocal because they point out that breastfeeding is not well-defined in those studies, which is obviously no surprise with older studies on breastfeeding. And they didn't give any consideration to exclusive breastfeeding. So these authors are, were interested in looking specifically at the effect of exclusive breastfeeding as an intervention. And so this study was done in Germany And in Germany, they have a voluntary nationwide multiple sclerosis registry and also a pregnancy registry. So it wasn't too difficult for them to um, get a cohort together. So they collected data on 201 pregnant women who had a history of relapsing and remitting multiple sclerosis from 2008 through 2012. And probably that type of multiple sclerosis because they're the ones who are going to relapse at times compared to those very stable people with multiple sclerosis. And they interviewed the pregnant women during every trimester and then months 3, 6, and 12 postpartum. And they asked questions about their symptoms of multiple sclerosis. 
During pregnancy, they also asked them if they intended to breastfeed. And then postpartum, they also asked about the exact date that they began either formula or solid food um, and the date of the return of their menses. So in this study, they actually defined exclusive breastfeeding as um, not offering anything other than breast milk or breastfeeding for the first two months. And then the group that was in the, in the non-exclusive breastfeeding group, um, in, uh, that when women in that group either didn't nurse at all or they um, supplemented in the first couple months. So they found that 59.7% uh, of these women intended to breastfeed exclusively for at least two months. But then among those women, four of them, or 3.3%, stopped breastfeeding early, earlier than they wanted to because of having a multiple sclerosis relapse and needing to take medications. Um, that would be, you know, sort of not ideal. 21% um, of the women breastfed and added supplementation in the first couple months, and about 20% didn't breastfeed. So they found that having an increased risk of multiple sclerosis um, postpartum relapse was associated with non-exclusive breastfeeding postpartum and also having a relapse during pregnancy. So if they had a relapse in pregnancy, they were more likely to have a, re a relapse postpartum. And if they were not exclusively breastfeeding the first couple months, they had a higher risk of relapse as well. Hmm. Um, you know, so I kind of thought, well, maybe it's because they, you know, women who have uh, more relapses postpartum or women who have more disease, worse disease, but they didn't actually see an association between the disease duration or the frequency of MS relapses before pregnancy and the risk of relapse postpartum. So, 38% um, of the women who did not nurse exclusively had a relapse in the first six months versus 24% of women who breastfed exclusively for two months. Um, they Only 24% of those women had a relapse in the first six months. And then the women who breastfed with supplementation, the difference in relapse between those women and the women who didn't nurse, there was no difference, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's either all or none, basically, in terms of protecting or reducing the risk of relapse. They also found that the return of menses in the first four months was associated with a higher risk of relapse in the first six months. Um, so that's a really strong indicator, too, if they, got, if they had their period back in the first four months. And then after six months postpartum, when the women who were exclusively breastfeeding, when they added in solids, suddenly the risk of relapse was the same for women, for those women versus the women who um, had never breastfed or who were supplementing in the first couple months. So once they basically started adding other stuff, their risk, again, they were no, no longer exclusively breastfeeding and um, their risk of relapse um, became the same as all the other women. So the, the authors conclude that um, exclusive breastfeeding was protective for the first six months, and that's just exclusively nursing for two months. They don't really say anything about what these women are doing in the next four months. And they, they feel it has to do with um, not ovulating, that, the, that basically what's happening is that these women are just not ovulating when they're nursing exclusively for the first couple months. They're not getting their period back in the first four months, and that is what seems to be protecting them. So is there, is there any information in the study about um, what birth control these women might be using, if any? No. Huh. No. That's interesting. I wondered about that also when you were mentioning about the return of menses. Because, for instance, 
if you had a um, hormone-containing IUD placed, mm-hmm. you know, six weeks after delivery, that may also alter return of menses along with the breastfeeding. Right. And, and I wonder how that plays in. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know, that's a good point. Um, I don't know that they actually, they, I didn't see anything that was... Um, I don't know what people use in Germany if it's similar to the United States in terms of, you know, the breakout of... Hormones, what, like, just, a, yeah, like a two days postpartum. Yeah. Yeah, like I had a patient the other day who um, was 12 days postpartum and I asked her about her medications and she said, well, I'm on my, I'm on the mini pill. And I said, you're on the mini pill already? She said, yeah, the, my, my doctor said that like, now that's the trend. Like everyone starts the mini pill, like on day two. Oh, good and I grief. thought I've not seen that as an intervention. That's, you know, that's not recommended by the CDC or World Health Organization. So oh, that's, oh, yeah. yeah, pretty sad. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's interesting. And, you know, I think it's like anything else. If you're ovulating and you're, and you have your period, pretty much any condition that a woman has is worse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really like everything, like arthritis, back pain, dizziness, <laughs> migraines, nausea, you name it. If you, Even if, if it's not worse, it feels like it's worse. Depression, you name it, it is worse, you know, right. And so I tell women uh, who are just miserable in their 30s and 40s, I tell them, you know right. what, when you're 50, you're going to feel great. <laughs> Estrogen, it's a blessing and a curse. Absolutely, it's a roller coaster. Life yeah. is a roller coaster. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, um, I'm going to talk about pasteurized donor human milk. Um, maintaining microbiological purity for four days at four degrees Celsius. So this is by Amy Manning Vickers, um, Shana Stark-Solis, David Hill, and David Newberg, and it was published in the Journal of Human Lactation in August 2015. And this was just a, a short article. It was, um, they did the study basically because donor milk, which is used by NICUs, is frozen, pasteurized human milk, defrosted, and stored usually at 4 degrees Celsius. And um, generally that milk is um, defrosted, and then if it's not used within 24 hours, it's thrown away. So as we know, most of the protective components of human milk are stable during prolonged storage at um, that low temperature But pasteurization reduces some factors responsible for suppressing microbial growth and protecting against infection. So the current Human Milk Banking Association of North America, also known as HMBANA, best practice guidelines recommend that milk be discarded 24 hours after being thawed. However, there is really little experimental data available on the duration of microbiological purity in thawed um, pasteurized donor human milk. So in this study, the authors thawed 42 independent, randomly selected, pasteurized human donor milk samples. As in a typical NICU, each was opened at three-hour intervals, and milk was withdrawn using a sterile syringe. In this case, they um, withdrew three mLs um, and put those into a sterile container. The samples removed um, at certain times were tested for the presence of any microorganisms, and those were at hours 0, 24, 48, 72, 96, and at 9 days. The results showed that no evidence of microbial growth was observed in cultured samples 
taken at zero through nine days after thawing of milk samples. So essentially, the pasteurized milk didn't have any uh, microbes grow in it for a full nine days, which I thought was amazing. Um, Thus, authors conclude that since there's no evidence of microbes in pasteurized human donor milk as dispensed by Humbana milk banks, when defrosted and stored at four degrees for up to nine days, extended storage of thawed milk in the NICU could reduce waste of donor milk, thereby increasing availability to vulnerable patients. They also note under study limitations that although their data strongly weigh against the 24-hour expiration of thawed milk, they cannot indicate a definite time point at which bacterial growth could be expected. And there are other criteria that may also limit the duration of pasteurized human donor milk utility. So nine-day-old milk may not be suitable for premature infants. And they suggest that further studies on changes and other parameters in human milk um, during prolonged storage are needed. Yeah, because the fats can go rancid too. I mean, there's that whole issue. Yeah, it's interesting. I I saw a study recently that was talking about lipase and that um, because in the past it's been stated that this is possibly associated with um, some milk, you know, going bad or getting an odor and it it showed that there was not that association between the levels of lipase and that happening. I need to dig it up for one of our future podcasts. But yeah, we should talk about that. There is something that's going on. Of course, milk doesn't last forever. I think I personally think it might have something to do with the types of diets that women have. And I've recommended to some women just to stop taking fish oil because I wonder if that's what's making the milk taste smell so awful <laughs> and also you know the fats break down too so yeah absolutely. I, we should yeah let's, let's make i'll write that down let's uh talk about that one in one of our future podcasts because that's such a common question i get too mm-hmm. but yeah i think the fats are an issue um vitamin levels um the continued degradation um of white cells over time you know so just like like if you make a lasagna and you <laughs> stick it in the refrigerator after five days it's not like it's infected but it just doesn't have the same flavor you know so. yeah and, and and i think you know there's a difference between bacteria and yeast and you know yeah. i'm worried about mold on my bread on the counter that's not right. necessarily what they were looking for here but it's a it's a question Although, but you were saying that already some um donor milk is being kept longer than 24 hours since this research came out. Yeah, I think that, um, well, a couple of things. I've heard some people tell me that in their NICUs, they are allowing um, the NICUs to use it for 48 hours. Um, And then the other thing is that some of the NICUs have been trying to team up with their postpartum floors and using the milk, if it is past 24 or even past 48 considering giving it to the 35 to 37 weekers or the term infants that need some extra milk or even to outpatients. Um, oh. Because why, why dump it, you know, even though it's been thought for, you know, a day, that's still going to be so much more superior than using formula. So we've been trying to, so we've been talking about, you know, trying to encourage hospitals to team up on that um, in our new milk bank that we signed a lease for. Um, Yay! So yeah, we're hoping to process starting in October, and that's the Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes in uh, Elk Grove Village, same town as the AAP, I believe. <laughs> I was going to um, say that sounds like a very familiar address. Yes, it is. Yeah, so it's going to be great. So I'll, we'll talk more about that. We'll uh, maybe we could do an interview with our executive director of the milk bank once we're up and running to kind of share all the glory. About that, that would be awesome. Yeah, great. Okay, so I have um, one last one. 
Do you want to plug your Milk Bank Conference? Because that seems oh, awesome. Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me. Although, once we publish this, it will be pretty close. But um, anyway, the Milk Bank, we're having the first Midwest Milk Bank Conference November 13th, Friday the 13th. Not, that doesn't have anything to do with it. And <laughs> um, it's going to be at Northern Illinois University um, at the Hoffman Estate Conference Center, Convention Center. And we already have a large number of people who are signed up for it, even though it's a couple months away. So um, I'll plug that on the um, on our Facebook page as well. So they're quite, awesome. quite exciting. Yeah. So this last study that we're going to talk about today is about breastfeeding and childhood leukemia incidents. This is a meta-analysis and systematic review. The authors are Amate and Keenan Boker and was published in JAMA, in Pediatri- JAMA Pediatrics in August of 2015. So this, re- this review searched for articles between 1960 and December of 2014, and it looked at an association between childhood leukemia and breastfeeding. So they point out that childhood cancer is the second cause of death among children in developed countries, second to accidents, and 30% of those childhood cancers are leukemia. So this study is essentially an update on the topic because there are many new studies that have come out, Um, but in past meta-analyses have shown a protective effect of breastfeeding on leukemia rates. So all articles had to have breastfeeding as a measured exposure and leukemia as an outcome. And they all had to be case-controlled, which means that they had a control group. So um, they had 18 studies that met the inclusion criteria, which included 10,292 cases of leukemia and 17,500 control individuals, which is, you know, that's actually a good sample. And then among, um, so they found that among all of these studies, any breastfeeding for at least six months or longer had an odds ratio of 0.81, which means that there's basically a 20%, on average, a 20% reduction in, um, in the risk of leukemia for, baby, for children who are breastfed for longer than six months. And then if, and then if they exclude cases of leukemia in the first year, um, they calculate that any breastfeeding for at least six months or longer decreased the risk of childhood leukemia by 17% compared to breastfeeding for a shorter period of time. Um, So they felt that it was um, reasonable to exclude children who had leukemia in the first year because they felt that that was probably more related to prenatal factors than um, anything like like viral issues. So they, um, then they talk about the, the biologic plausibility or the underlying reason why this might be the case, because of course that's so important to understand, you know, is this real or is it not real? And um, they brought up a couple things, but they didn't really go into detail about it. But one thing is they felt that the stem cells that are in breast milk have some sort of impact on this risk of leukemia. And they state that breastfed infants ingest millions of these stem cells daily in breast milk, which I think is so cool because I don't really think about that. (laughs) But these stem cells have been shown to go through the gut wall and into the infant bloodstream and hit target organs and have an effect on active immunity, play a role in active immunity, which is so super cool. And then in addition, they think that the gut microbiome plays a role because there's this theory about leukemia that it has to do with genetic factors plus viral influences that children are exposed to, especially Epstein-Barr virus, and that infants, because of their 
uh, breastfed infants, because of their different gut microbiome, they're less at risk for severe infections, severe um, viral infections. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what my dog there's said the, too. There's <laughs> the bark as promised. That's Alrighty. right. Yeah. Have a good day. Yeah, take care. I'll talk to you later, Karen. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med dot o-r-g. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.